0: For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. These also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who, received, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him.
1: So I don't know if you were listening closely, but that is a pretty wild 10 verses. It's like, what is happening? Even this guy's name is a really interesting name. Here's, here's I just want to bring you back to, remember that really scary part that we talked about where the, writer, the author of Hebrews is making this really harsh warning in Hebrews 6? Right before that, in Hebrews 5.11, he starts that whole section by saying, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then he goes into that long warning. And what he specifically has a lot to say about, if you jump up to the prior verse, verse 10 is, uh, or I'll go up to verse 9 so we have a complete sentence. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, that's Jesus, to all obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's saying, look, I have a lot to explain about Melchizedek. But because you're hard, you become dull of hearing, because your hearts are hard, it's, I don't know if you're ready for it. So in some ways, if I can go along with author of Hebrews, and I say this like half tongue in cheek, but it does seem to be what the author of Hebrews is saying, is like, it's really important as a spiritual litmus test whether or not you're able to follow the argument that the author of Hebrews is about to make about Melchizedek. It's like some of this stuff is deep and, and, uh, and you need a big old understanding of the scriptures, but the author of Hebrews seems to be saying this is for the, those who desire to be spiritually mature because you got to stay in it a little bit. You got to stay with what I'm about to teach you. Then he goes through this big old warning and says, you got to persevere, you got to be a person of faith, you got to hold fast to the promises of God. And now all of a sudden in verse 7, even, the, even as Eve read, you probably notice it's like, for this Melchizedek, like, I'm sorry, uh, were we talking about Melchizedek? Well, that whole section ends, as Pastor Rich said last week, with, as a for Jesus was a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're back to Melchizedek. And he says, all right, let's talk some Melchizedek. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Everybody say Melchizedek. Try it again, Melchizedek. Cool. What was that? That was a lot. Um, uh, Melchizedek. We'll talk about what his name means. Here's the fascinating thing about Melchizedek. Maman shows up in all of three, or depending how you count, four verses in the entire Old Testament, and yet Hebrews takes at least a full chapter, if not a few chapters, to say how significant this figure is in us understanding the most important person who ever lived, namely Jesus, our Savior. And so, uh, let's read those couple verses where he shows up. Go with me back to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, I won't get into this whole story. I, I have to like cut certain parts here, but... Suffice to say, here's your context, is that Abraham, who has been promised he will become the father of many nations, who at this time is still Abram, has God has made a promise that he'll bless all the nations through him and through his offspring. And then there's this battle that occurs between all of these, they, they say kings, but it's more like these kind of local mayors, these local chieftains you can think of. There, there's this scuffle that happens, and Abram's nephew Lot is caught up in it and then Abram goes to rescue Lot, and then all of this happens. So Genesis 4, all of this, it's not much, but Genesis 14, I'll start at verse 17. After his return, that's Abram, from the defeat of, good luck, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, here's our guy, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, and Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all we have about Melchizedek. Until... If you go forward with me now to the Psalms. The Psalms are kind of in the middle. We, we went to the front of the Bible. Now we're going to go to the middle of the Bible. Go to Psalm 110. And I wonder if I asked you what the most quoted passage, Old Testament passage, is by the New Testament. What... what What passages quoted most from the Old Testament in the New Testament? I wonder what you'd say. The correct answer is actually this psalm, Psalm 110. This is what Peter preaches at Pentecost, if that means anything to you. This is what the Apostle Paul builds a lot of his understanding of who Jesus is on. So just listen to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this is a psalm of David pointing forward to another greater king than David himself, who was the great king, who was the kind of high point of the people of God, Israel's history, is he's pointing forward to another one. This is, this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the one that the people would long for for centuries after this promise was made. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of... Melchizedek, kind of out of nowhere, all of a sudden he shows up in this psalm. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Nice image for you. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's all the evidence that we have on Melchizedek. Let's go back Hebrews. You still following? Remember, it's really important for you to follow along with the argument here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We just read that in Genesis 14. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So Melchizedek offers this blessing picture, kind of praise over him, offers uh, God's commendation over Abraham. And re- in response, in, in grateful response to that blessing, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he got from that when he went in and saved Lot. He also took back a lot of the goods that those other chieftains had stolen, and he gives 10% of that to Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of Righteousness. That's literally what his name means, Melchizedek. It's a weird name, but it's actually a beautifully, deeply meaningful name. It's the combination of the Hebrew words for king and righteousness. Melk or, or Melchi is, is that, that kingly word in the Hebrew language. And then Tzedek, Zadok, uh, say it different ways, the, whatever kind of form that it's in, is righteousness. So it's the king. He, he's just telling us what that name means. He's the king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem. That's literally what he's king of in Genesis 14. We're told that his particular area of, of domain is Salem. And that's almost certainly biblical scholars agree, given where Abraham is, given where all this goes down. That's almost certainly a reference to what city do you know of that has that word at the end of it. Jerusalem, which literally Jerusalem is, you're learning so much Hebrew this morning, you're welcome, is the combination of the word city and peace. Shalom is probably a word, Selem, in, in the Hebrew language, but Shalom is, is that word there. And then Ir, what, what ultimately ends up in English as Jer, Ir, U, uh, Salem is city of peace. And so he's the king of kind of ancient Jerusalem which, of course, is the the epicenter of the people of God's story from there forward. It's where King David himself reigns. It's where the Messiah is meant to come and reign from when that longed-for anointed one actually shows up. That is king of peace. There you go. Now, verse 3 is an interesting one. It says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So look, the... Ancient literature, even scholars up until this day, they do wild stuff with Melchizedek. They make him uh, ancient uh, appearing of Jesus incarnate before actually Jesus of Nazareth comes. This might be the second member of the Trinity who just shows up and blesses Abraham. He might be some kind of angelic being. That's why I... I'd rather just do what the text says, and we don't have that from the text. I think that what most scholars would say here is that what the author of Hebrews is getting at is, according to the way his story is told, he doesn't have a father, he doesn't have a mother, he doesn't have genealogy. Why that's significant? You still follow me? We're going somewhere, believe me. Why that's significant is because when it's said that he's a priest of Most High God, to to Hebrew ears. That's why this is called Hebrews is because it's written to a majority Jewish audience. They would have said, oh, he must belong to the tribe of, anybody know? Levi. Look at you guys, you Bible scholars. The tribe of Levi, that priesthood in the people of God in Israel was entirely determined by who is your mom? Who is your dad? What's your line? Do you come from the line of Levi, but this is a priest of Most High God, who we are not told anything about his father and mother. Therefore, his priesthood is based on something else. It's based on the direct commendation, the direct uh, installment of God to make this man a priest. And it says, in this way, he's very similar to Jesus. Because here's the question that some of the readers of this letter are asking that I bet almost none of us are asking which is if Jesus is a priest, how can it possibly be the case that he's not a Levi? Because Jesus is a, here, we'll just keep doing Bible trivia. Jesus is of the tribe of what? Anybody know? Judah, very good. He's of the tribe of kings. His his line, the line of David, he goes back to Bethlehem, if you remember that whole thing. His line is the line that kings are supposed to come from, the line of Judah. And so how can it be that he's a priest if he's not of the line of Levi. Okay, maybe I'm okay with him being a king because he's from Judah, but I don't get this combination. This is what the author of Hebrews does. He says, this has happened before. There's a a whisper of this previous to even the people of God, Israel, coming into existence. And the whole point of this passage, which I hope by the end of it is as mind-blowingly significant as the author of Hebrews suggests it is, is that one of the most remarkable things about Jesus is he is what we all, every single human being that's ever lived, most needs. Namely, a king who is also a priest. That's what we need. We need a king who's also a priest. This goes all the way back. You still follow me? How we doing? How's the litmus test? Anybody checking out? Stay with me. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where when God makes human beings, he gives them a certain role. It says that we are made in the image of God. And if you've been around Jacob's well for any amount of time, if you've sat under the, the teaching of this pulpit, I hope by now you know what that means. What it means to be made in the image of God is not primarily about what we look like, what we sound like, how we reason. It's a role that we uniquely play in creation. And that role is to have authority, to have dominion on over god's world in other words to rule to rule though under god's authority you see we are kings and queens that's what we were made to be that's what it means to be human we were made to rule but in the second chapter of genesis those those rulers that king and queen are actually put in in this in this garden and they're told to tend and work that garden which is interesting because that's the exact language that's later constantly used of the priests in the first the tabernacle, this place where God resides, and then in the temple. And so in in Genesis 1, human beings sound like kings and queens. In Genesis 2, we sound like priests and priestesses. Now, instead of stepping into those roles, what happens is we both step out of ruling in the authority of God, instead rule in our own names. And therefore, as Romans says, we lose the glory that was ours. What we were crowned with, Psalm 8, you can look this up, the glory and dignity we are crowned with, we set aside. That's the literal, we are no longer the kings and queens we were meant to be. And instead of tending to the world, blessing it, instead we extract from it, for our own good. And we extract from each other. And so instead of being a blessing, we become part of the curse. We become complicit in the curse of this world. And so the priests and priestesses we were meant to be, we no longer are. And what this leads to is your and mine biggest issues in the entire world, namely the guilt we feel, the fact that there is this sense in which We know that we do not measure up to some standard that we can call this or that, but that ultimately is the voice and the the destruction of sin in our lives that leads to that guilt and to shame. Shame is this overriding sense that we are not quite enough. And I'd like to emphasize that here today because I think that that's the, the emphasis that we'll have a lot in the rest of Hebrews. You see, when humanity steps out of that role, of being kings, queens, rulers, priests? What's the very first thing that happens, you burgeoning Bible scholars, you? What do human beings do? Let me hear it on the call. I'm just kidding. I don't know how you would do it. What do they do? They hide. They hide. They cover themselves because they have this sudden awareness that they are not in the condition that they are meant to be. There is this soul level discomfort that they feel with the lack of something that's at the very core now of who they are. And so they cover themselves. This is shame. This is the voice of shame. And this is the voice that continues to speak over each of our lives individually and even over our culture. One of my favorite uh Subgenres of, I guess you could call it entertainment, are um, like documentaries about pop stars. If <laughs> I may be so bold. There's a really fascinating one about Avicii, I'd commend to you. The Taylor Swift one is really interesting. The Billie Eilish one that came out recently is interesting. But I don't know if you've seen this new Demi Lovato one. It is not for the faint of heart, it is a lot. And one of the things, and I realize she's a human being, and so I don't want to make light of her and just turn her into an object lesson. But I think what fascinates me so much about these folks is they seem to have gotten what all of us think we long for. And so often, what you watch is the utter destruction it does to any sense of their humanity. That as soon as they have it, they desperately want out, and they don't know how to get out. And just in this, in this whatever it is, like four-episode thing with Demi Lovato, it is crushing to see the amount of covering that she is trying to do for a sense that she does not fully measure up. It reminds me of like a modern day, if you know the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it's like a modern day Ecclesiastes. It is her attempting any way that she can to silence this voice inside of her that says, in spite of the fact that I'm a global megastar, in spite of the fact that I'm countlessly wealthy, in spite of the fact that I have the praise of millions, there's something inside of me that continues to scream, I do not measure up. And so she covers with all of these various things. She covers by image. She covers by trying to put out another eye. She covers because here's your options in shame. And we all have it. Your options are either to try and cover it, and this we do through accomplishment or by trying to look a certain way or by trying to have certain relay, We, we try and cover it because something needs to stand in between my sense of unworthiness and a sense of that which judges me. Which ultimately the Bible says is God's judgment over you, but we call it all kinds of other things. The approval of others, the, the, the need for love and effect, whatever. It is. We need something to stand in between that thing that we know we lack. And so either we cover or we numb that pain. We numb it through, right, uh, on, a, on a grand scale. We numb it through drugs and alcohol. Or we numb it through another, you know, hour and a half session on TikTok. That's all trying to quiet something in us that says, I'm not quite who I should be. And the Bible names that and says, yeah, that's the effect of sin in your life. So you know what you need? You need something to stand in between you and whatever that judgment is. And the biblical language for that says you need a priest. You need someone to go before God on your behalf. And then you know what you also need? Someone utterly committed and capable of changing you from the inside out. Of replacing that voice of condemnation with a voice of welcome and healing and forgiveness. But you need someone with the authority to do that with authority to stand before the one whose voice you actually need the approval of. And so you need a good and better king. You need someone to rule over your life who has authority to go in that way before God. What's so interesting in the Old Testament system is that you never combine these two roles. In fact, what's what's fascinating is that when God actually creates the, kind of recreates the nation of Israel after the events where he pulls them out of Egypt and parts the Red Sea and all of that. In Exodus 19.6, do you know what he calls the people of God? He says, I have made you a kingdom of priests. I have made you a kingdom of priests. In other words, I am reforming humanity through you. That role of being a king and a priest, I'm going to do that through you. And then here's what's fascinating. The law says, but those two things can't happen in the same person. It utterly separates those roles. And in fact, in the very first king of Israel, Saul, who is installed, actually the biggest trouble that he gets into and why the crown is removed from him is because he attempts to be a priest. Because he actually offers sacrifices. And then a true priest comes to him and says, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm offering sacrifice. And he says, no, here's, here's what's dangerous about that. Is you're manipulating the religious system for your own political gain. These have to be separate. And even not just on the scale of national politics, but it makes sense why these two roles. What is a king? A king is one with authority. A king is one who stands for justice. A king is one primarily concerned with truth. What's a priest? A priest in some ways is the opposite. A priest is the one interested in your pain and weakness, who comes alongside of you, who provides counsel in the midst of your pain who is utterly for you, who stands before God on your behalf and says, I know this one is unworthy, but I bring something that stands between them and that judgment. King is one of judgment. Priest is one of grace. One teacher says it is that a king has to be primarily concerned with truth. A priest is concerned with tears. And so often in human experience, these can't combine. Think of, think of even more everyday examples. I've been, uh, had the immense privilege of, of coaching my little guy in t-ball. And any of you who have experienced youth sports, um, you may, this is, a, this is a term adopted from the Rodanovich family, is you may know the term daddy ball. You know what daddy ball is? Daddy ball is when, oh, guess who bats first? Guess who gets to pitch? Guess who gets to play quarterback? Guess who gets to play every single minute of the game. Oh, it's the coach's kid. Oh, dad's the coach and somehow the kid is the one who gets all of the opportunities, right? The one with authority shouldn't be the one who also has a vested interest in only that person's well-being. You don't let you don't let a parent write a review of their child's movie that they directed, right? Like the New York Times would be like, yeah, but mom, what did you think, right? These are so seldom combined. So much so that they're divided in the law of God. Now you have this one. Promise, now here's, here's what's happening. is In Psalm 110, which is a psalm, go back there with me. You still follow me? Everybody with me? You guys good? All right, go back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. David wrote this psalm. David was the great king of Israel. And he starts it by saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is David's Lord? Who? Okay, who is David's Lord's Lord? It's like very interesting stuff. Who could possibly be higher than David's level of authority? And then who's higher than that one's authority? You have this whisper that there's a greater king than David whose authority is is godlike in some kind of way. That's the first promise here. It's saying, there's a greater king coming than me, right? Imperfect David. David who messed up. David who was not the perfect king. Far from it. He says, there's one coming. Do you know how I know that this is Jesus? Because Jesus himself uses this text with the Jewish leaders of his time. He says, hey, David wrote this psalm. And he says, my Lord said to the Lord said to my Lord, so who's David, who could be David's Lord? Who's greater than David, who actually stands very much close to God's authority? Jesus says, I'm, I'm that one. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In other words, people will submit to your authority in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. And then verse four, out of nowhere, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of a sudden, Melchizedek's back. In other words, David is saying, if this one is truly the perfect one, the one that we long for, the one who will bring salvation where no king has before, this one will have to also be a priest. And he can't be a Levite priest because he has to be born of the line of Judah. So is there any precedent biblically for one who is both king and priest. And Psalm 110 says there is a line. There is a line that this one can exist in. And it's the line of this one, Melchizedek. That's how God can actually bring one who is both king and priest. Go back to Hebrews. Verse 4. How great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi, there it is, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, that's Jesus. Oh, no, sorry, that's Melchizedek. This one who didn't have his descent from Levi, Levi didn't even exist yet, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's when the the Israelites give to to the Levites. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I actually think that the author of Hebrews is being a little tongue-in-cheek there. He's saying, it's as though there's actually that the priest, that the Levite priests have a priest that they're accountable to in the same way that the king, King David, has a king that he's accountable to. This is why Melchizedek leaps off the page to the New Testament writers, though he shows up very briefly. What's payoff here? Why is this significant? I need, you need, a priest king more than you know. We need one who actually has the authority to stand in judgment over us and yet is capable of coming alongside us like a priest. Let me put it this way. Pastor in in New York City, Tim Keller, often he can't do uh, better with his illustration, so I'll just go with his. As He says to be unknown, for someone not to know you, for someone to be unfamiliar with who you are, for someone to not walk alongside you and say they love you, is superficial sentimentality. It's like, you know, the super nice cashier or the, you know, the flight attendant or something who's like, how are you? And they treat you so great. And you're like, if you only knew, you would not be treating me like this, right? Like, it's just sentimentality. It's sweet, but it's superficial. To be fully known To have someone walk alongside you who who knows you deeply and to be unloved by them is often the source of our greatest hurt, pain, and brokenness. Therefore, our greatest need in this life is to be fully known and fully loved. See where I'm going with this? This is what a priest king is uniquely able to do. Because a king has to concern themselves primarily with the truth what's in front of them. They have to make a judgment on what's standing in front of them. In other words, Jesus is the one who has been given authority to know you fully and to make a cosmically definitive judgment over you. In fact, when we stand in judgment, we will stand before him, the scriptures say. That's how much authority he has. That's how much of a king he is. And yet he's also the one who not, he didn't put something between us And that judgment, something between us and the guilt and shame that results from the fact that we do not measure up to that. He put himself in the way of that. He is your perfect priest. You see, he knows you fully. He has more authority over your life than any being in the entire universe. And he's also the one who sheds tears over your brokenness, over your sin, over your rebellion, and then did something about it and utterly commits himself to changing you, to not leaving you where you are. What's fascinating is there's a step beyond that good news, which is the the New Testament in in various places. 1 Peter 2 says that there's a bunch of places where it says that what now characterizes the church, the people of God now, is we are, do you know what we are? We are a kingdom kingdom. Priests. See, God didn't give up on human beings actually moving toward this identity, to be kings and priests in this world. And yet, we do it imperfectly in a way that Jesus did it perfectly, but this is what he's moving towards. Because here's the reality, is that in order to truly experience the truth of Jesus as your king and priest, so often God will actually use imperfect images of that in your life to do that right? This is, in other words, church, this is what Jacob's wealth should be. We should be a kingdom of priests. In other words, we should be able to see each other as we are and not love each other in spite of that, but love each other through that. We should be able to have enough of a backbone. I'll quote Brene Brown. Brene Brown says that so often what we bring to the table are hard hearts and really soft backbones. We don't want to receive anything. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to let anyone in, but then someone does something to us and we just cave, right? what we actually need are soft hearts and strong backbones where i disagree with bernie brown is i don't think human beings are capable apart from the spirit of god of having that done that is inward work you will never do enough self-improvement and mindfulness to be someone whose heart goes from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh for someone who goes from caving a, Around the winds of culture, caving around the winds of what your friends think should should and shouldn't be done, and actually has a backbone to stand for truth, unless God Himself is doing a work in you to give you that level of courage. And we're supposed to be doing this for one another. We're supposed to be able to stand for truth while being soft enough to love people in the midst of it. And oh, how we need this individually. So often, the the most profoundly transformative moments in your life is when someone sees you fully, knows you fully, sees your junk, and moves towards you in the midst of that revelation. This is why confession of sin is so important together. It's not because there's something magical about speaking out what's messed up and broken in your life. I think why Jesus constantly says confess your sins to one another is so that you can experience a priest king sitting across from you saying, hey, that's not okay. I'm not going to turn a blind eye to that, but I love you and I'm going to love you through that. And I'm going to love you into you no longer being characterized by that. Those are the moments that change us. Husbands and wives, this is why marriage is supposed to be the context in which we are most experiencing the sanctification of Jesus. Because my goodness, we know each other, don't we? In all of our faults as spouses. But to move towards your spouse in the midst of that is one of the greatest works of Jesus' redeeming love that your spouse can experience. And if you say, well, they have to go first, Jesus would say, I went first, you go first. I move towards you in spite of you moving away from me. This is also what the world needs from the church. Especially in this moment of chatter about everything, politics, racial injustice. We need people who move in that conversation with profound love and empathy, not just for your own tribe, but love and empathy For those who are utterly unlike you, who actually move not into echo chambers, but move into difficult and uncomfortable places to say, surely there is something about your view that I need to hear and be challenged by. And then as we do that, though, we need backbones to stand for truth. We need backbones to stand for what the word of God says and not for the shifting winds of culture. We need to be able to stand and say yes to that, but I'm sorry, no to that. And I know it's a package deal for you, but so is my faith a package deal. And I can't give up on that and stand for this. I'm sorry. Soft hearts, strong backbones. This is what priest kings, it's what priestess queens look like in this world. And oh, how we need it from each other. And oh, how the world needs it. But let me end with this. Because if all I end with is go and do better, you non-priests, non-kings, then we haven't centered this rightly. You see, the author of Hebrews is jumping around trying to get us excited about Melchizedek because he's saying, you get your greatest need met in the true and better Melchizedek because he really is your king and he really is your priest. And so often, whichever of those we lack, if you're someone who can move towards people in empathy and love, but you never can stand for truth, it's probably because you yourself have never actually experienced and stood in the awe of the king of the universe and realized how good and beautiful it is that there is an objective standard of truth and he is it. And you've likely never sat under that truth yourself and submitted your knee to it. And so it's hard to do that for other people. But oh, the joy that you will experience when you realize you have a good and perfect and true king. And if you're the kind of person who's always bringing truth into contact and banging people over the head and people don't feel loved and empathy, I would suggest to you oftentimes it's because you do not realize that Jesus really is the true and better high priest. He is a perfect priest for you. He knows exactly who you are and he loves you in spite of it. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. You need your goodwill hunting moment, right? You need to know that the cosmic standard of the universe wraps his arms around you in love and says, in me, not in yourself, I see all of that. I don't blink an eye at, I don't just wink at it, but in me, you are worthy. In me, you are home. In me, you are loved. And so instead of moving you toward just some kind of change of behavior and mindset and how you engage in your marriage and how you engage on social media or something, I want to move you towards the true and better Melchizedek and say, have you really experienced him as your true king? Have you really experienced him as your true priest? Because when we do, our hearts are utterly transformed. Shame is replaced by a sense of freedom in him. Our guilt is replaced by a sense of worthiness in him, and we can go forth and be the people and the church that he calls us to be. Let's pray. Father God, do this work in us. We need it so deeply. God, even now as we receive communion, I pray that you would work these truths into our hearts, Lord, that you would soften us where we need to be softened, that you would strengthen us where we need to be strengthened, God, that we would sense your empathy, but that we would also sense the beauty and splendor of the King of the universe who is somehow beautifully able to combine these things, Lord. You are the human being that we cannot be, and yet you won't settle for that because you're changing us into the people you you desire us to be. God, continue that work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.